0: Love them, you hate them, and you can't stop talking about them. Announcers, analysts, pundits—they're all fair game. It's sports media mayhem with Alex Reamer. Time to let it rip. Hello everybody, happy Wednesday, happy Wednesday indeed, and welcome into another edition of the Sports Media Mayhem Podcast. My name is Alex Dreamer as we fly through November here, and this is a very special show that I have for you all today. I'm reuniting with one of my favorites, The Liberal Firewall is back, John Tomasi makes his debut on the Sports Media Mayhem Podcast. That's coming up in just a few moments, and it's a great time to have Tomasi on. It's very apropos. That Tomasi is on today because, of course, our ultimate foil, Donald Trump, has announced his candidacy for the White House in 2024. So it really is just the cosmic universe all lining up for Tomasi to join me on the show today. Unfortunately, we don't talk about Trump's 2024 run. You have to tune into the post show for that. We talk about a bunch of other things. Ah, I love it. So that's coming up in a few moments. You don't want to miss that. But before we get to Tomasi and the liberal firewall gets back together. Have a few notes I want to fly through here at the top of the show. The Patriots, of course, are coming off the bye week. They will play the Jets this Sunday. The Patriots are 5-4 and four at roughly the halfway point. Lots of halfway reviews, of course, over the last week with the bye. I just want to do a brief one with the NFL announcing that we've heard through the first nine games of the season. And man, oh man, we've spent a lot of time the last few years talking about how Tom Brady's absence has taught Patriots fans how the other side of the NFL world lives. Well, you can carry that right down to the announcing teams we've been forced to endure for the bulk of this season. I think we got one Romo and Nance game. Uh, We've gotten a few other decently called broadcasts. Eyeing Eagle, Charles Davis have been on the call for a few games. They're becoming more divisive with time, but... I think they generally do a good job. Ian Eagle is a really sharp play-by-play guy with a good sense of humor. And Charles Davis is not, he's not going to tell you anything all that interesting, but he's not going to tell you anything all that embarrassing either. And he certainly can follow the action, which is more than what I can say for, I don't know, Greg Gumbel and Adam Archuleta, who were on the call two weeks ago for Patriots-Colts. This has been a problem for them the past couple of years when they've done Patriots games. Archuleta just getting basic facts wrong. Greg Gumbel not being able to uh, to follow the action. He's in his mid-70s now. I think it's safe to say that his best days as as an announcer are behind him. We had a Trent Green game, which, uh, well, he really gave us nothing but white noise. It's amazing to me that Trent Green, I think he called Patriots Browns, yes, Bailey Zappi's second start. And going into it, I said, all right, well, Bailey Zappi is a rookie in a second start. Trent Green played NFL quarterback for a long time, obviously knows the position well. So let's see, is he going to give me some sort of insight into Bailey Zappi? And he did none of that. He just offered cliche after cliche. When replays were shown, he did one of the least favorite things that color analysts can do in my mind. One of the worst things I should say that color analysts could do in my mind. And that's just basically narrate the action that we're already seeing in front of us. And when you watch these third tier, fourth tier CBS and Fox NFL broadcast teams, it always begs the question, is there really nobody else better out there? (laughs) I mean, I understand these are obviously hard jobs. I understand that once you have somebody in the booth, who's done it for a few years and is comfortable with the protocols, the production meetings, all of that. It can be hard to move on. But CBS has a multi-billion dollar partnership with the NFL. They really can't do better than Greg Gumbel and Adam Archuleta. They really can't. You're going to tell me that of all of the recently retired ex-players, you can't do better than that. And I know that being a color analyst is hard. There's a reason why most retired players go to the studio, do TV hits. They don't step into the booth. It's a much different gig. You know, even Kirk Herbstreet, who I think is an excellent college football analyst, has shown this season on Amazon with Al Michaels that he is just a fair NFL analyst. It's hard. But we can't do better than Trent Green just telling me what I'm already seeing in front of my, you know, on my TV on replay. We can't do any better than that. I said this at the start of the season. We did our NFL preview podcast, and it rings true today after watching nine Patriots games, most of which have been called by second, third tier, fourth tier announced teams. We really can't do better than this. It's amazing. All the money, all the trappings that these networks spend on the NFL, all the resources that they pull into it. And once you go down the depth chart, it's pretty darn weak. So we'll see what happens in the second half of the season. If the Patriots continue to middle... We'll continue to hear middling announced teams if they go on a bit more of a run. Not sure how much Nance and Romo games we'll get with Mac Jones in this offense, but maybe more Ian Eagle and Charles Davis, which at this point is the best that we can hope for. Andrew Marchand has an interesting piece in New York Post that came out the other day about how the sports world should break up with Twitter. Andrew Marchand, of course, is New York Post's sports media critic, and Elon Musk's haphazard, chaotic, hectic, some would say disastrous Twitter takeover has been a main story for the last few weeks. $44 billion, and he seems to be running it into the ground. Say what you want about Elon Musk, and obviously he's a brilliant guy with SpaceX and Tesla and all the rest, but he seems like an awful, awful manager. Firing people in the middle of the night, Hardcore Twitter, long and intensive hours, programmers sleeping on the floor, mass layoffs that you receive an email at 3 a.m. Pacific time telling you you've lost your job just like that. I mean, laying someone off is one of the most traumatic things that can happen to somebody, and Elon Musk just discards people like they're objects, and I don't care how much you worship wealth. I don't care how much you worship his anti-establishment stance. Uh, that's a lousy way to treat people. And I don't see how anybody could applaud that. And besides the point, his ideas so far have been terrible. The Twitter verification system, where you just pay $8 to be verified. They had to pull that very, very quickly. And now they're reprogramming it, reconfiguring it, if you will, because, well, we had a million parody accounts pop up. We had LeBron James request a trade from the Lakers. <laughs> we had pretty much every star athlete have fake Twitter accounts requesting trades, sports insiders, fake accounts reporting fake news. This continued through politics, pop culture, you know, global issues, brands, of course. Eli Lilly, my favorite, saying they were making insulin free. Then they had to tweet an apology, not for the fact that they price gouged people with insulin, but for the fact that there was a tweet that said insulin would be free. No, no one would not be free. So it's been a disaster. Um, but the question is, how will the sports world react? And how does musters how does Elon Musk's takeover factor into it? And first of all, let me just say that generally, generally speaking, how valuable is Twitter to the pro sports ecosystem, if you will? Uh it might not be as valuable as you think. Mark Cuban said this in a Washington Post article that came out earlier this month about Musk's Twitter takeover and how it would affect Pro sports and teams and how they interact on the platform. Cuban said, quote, our biggest base is younger fans. They aren't on Twitter. Our most lucrative base watches linear TV and buys tickets. The vast majority are not on Twitter. And that's true. The NBA, for example, its largest fan base, as Cuban says, younger people. And how do they consume the league? They consume the league on TikTok. They're on Instagram. They're not necessarily on Twitter. And as Cuban said, where does the NBA and all these other sports leagues make their money? They make their money with people buying tickets and going to games. They make money with people watching on linear TV. The more people watch, the higher the ratings are and the higher the networks can charge for advertising. And thus, the more the networks can pay the leagues to broadcast their games. It's quite simple. I'm no math guy, but even I understand that. And Twitter doesn't really factor into that at all. And it also lends the question, once they roll out this revamped Twitter blue, and you do have to pay $8 for verification. And my prediction always has been that Elon Musk and his programmers are going to make you pay $8 for Twitter verification if you want your tweets to be seen. And Musk actually said this, I think, a couple weeks ago on some sort of call where he basically said that if you don't have a verified Twitter account, once this gets rolled out, your tweets will basically just go straight to the spam folder. Nobody will see what you're tweeting. So if you're anybody who's anybody, and you're a public figure, and you want to promote your work, or you want to promote yourself, or you want to even interact with people, you're going to have to pony up the $8 a month to get verified in this revamped Twitter blue. So the question is, will athletes on Twitter want to pay $8 per month to become verified. Obviously, that's a very small cost in the grand scheme of things, but I'm not sure if all of them will because most big athletes don't have their largest followings on Twitter. Their largest followings are on Instagram. I mean, that's true across the board. You look at LeBron, even Kyrie Irving a couple weeks ago talking about the anti-Semitic film that he was promoting on Twitter. Yeah, he has 4.6 million Twitter followers, But I want to say, seven-something million Instagram followers, I mean, way more. And every athlete, Tom Brady, I mean, every major sports figure has way more followers on Instagram than they have on Twitter. That's true with most celebrities as well. And there's been a number of pieces written about this in recent years, about how a lot of celebrities uh, really don't bother Twitter much anymore. It's viewed as a very high-risk, low-reward platform, because whatever you tweet— there's no real guarantee that it's going to correlate to dollars, and as we know, it's a platform where everybody is just waiting to jump down your throat. It's a very toxic atmosphere, and that was before Elon Musk took over. Instagram is a much friendlier place. TikTok is a much friendlier place. Even Facebook, I think, for some celebrities, you know, their demographic of fans is obviously dependent on this, but... Facebook can even be a better driver. And certainly, certainly in terms of online traffic, Facebook is a much bigger driver. That's true for news organizations. And that's where I want to lead into next here. Sports, media, Twitter. Well, first, let me just say one one area where Twitter is useful to sports fans and one way in which it has changed how we consume sports is the fact that we see a lot of highlights now On Twitter, and fans are also tweeting in real time. Sports writers are tweeting in real time. And if you're a sports fan, your timeline is filled with all these sports people. You open up during a big game and you see the highlights, you see the real time commentary, and that's enjoyable. And it's second nature now. It's been second nature for me for a decade at this point. Big game is on the TV, Twitter is open. I'm scrolling through as I'm watching the game, and it does add to my enjoyment of the game, and it definitely adds to how I think about the game and what I know about the game, because amazingly, I'm watching the game just like everybody else, but other people are able to glean insights that I'm not. But the question is, if they change the algorithms so we see less real-time tweets and more advertisements and more tweets from big accounts— from several hours ago that still appear on our timelines as if they're new. I've noticed this has been happening more and more. Uh, if the algor- if the algorithms change, Twitter could become much less convenient and less easy to operate in the middle of a big game, and then we'll see how that shifts. But in terms of how sports media will interact with Twitter going forward, and to go back to Andrew Marshan's column about how sports media should break up with Twitter, um, you know, I think, number one it would lessen groupthink because you wouldn't automatically know what everybody else is thinking. And that's true for all verticals of media, not just sports media, but for sports media, that'd be a great thing as well. And I'm just not talking about game commentary, like, oh, should that coach have gone for it on fourth down? But I'm talking about how these big issues are parsed out. We see groupthink on all levels when it comes to labor negotiations When it comes to how teams handle uh, public relations issues, when it comes to the intersection of social and cultural issues in sports, we see a real groupthink atmosphere on Twitter. A lot of it is very, very left wing. I think that uh, we had on Derek Thompson a few weeks ago from the uh, Daily Beast. And he made a great point talking about Dave Portnoy and about how uh, you know, Dave Portnoy and the Twitter discourse and Barstool and really the point about how, you know, the left wing discourse has really won the day. You know, the way that we talk about head injuries in football, labor negotiations, everything else. I mean, that war is already won. And I think a lot of that is attributed to the group think that we see on Twitter and the most powerful voices in sports media and the opinions that they continually push out there. If we see less of that, Again, we'll see less groupthink, we'll see more diversity of thought, and overall, that's a good thing, but you know, in terms of Twitter's value to publishers, the worst-kept secret in the industry, and Elon Musk got owned, actually, I think last week when he tweeted that Twitter by far drives the most traffic to websites, that is not true at all, not in the least. The worst-kept secret in media, one of the worst-kept secrets in media, is that Twitter- does not result in page views. In fact, it's horrible, horrible. It drives about the same amount of traffic to websites as Pinterest. Facebook remains the monster. Here are the numbers. Facebook accounts for 74.13% of web traffic referrals from social media. These numbers are from January 2022. 74.13% comes from Facebook. Facebook is a monster. And we all crap on Facebook for being Boomer Paradise. Nobody under their age of 45 or 50 posts regularly on there. Well, they may not post regularly, but they click regularly. 74.13% of web traffic referrals from social media originate from Facebook. So Facebook remains the monster. And then Twitter, which Elon Musk again said, is the biggest click driver in the internet by far, Not even close. Twitter is at 7.73%. Pinterest, 7.65%, as I mentioned. You have Instagram at 4.5%, YouTube at 3.8%, and then Reddit, Tumblr, LinkedIn are way at the bottom, around 1% or, or lower. But, I mean, right there, you talk about how Twitter is viewed by a lot of publicists as very high risk, low reward. Same thing with uh in terms of driving web traffic potentially high risk let's say you send out a tweet that is misunderstood people then pile on you we'll see how the moderation rules change with Elon Musk but if they get looser the vitriol could become even nastier and for what gain for 7.73% of web traffic no no we'll 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 sacrifice the 7% of web traffic for our for the sake of our mental sanity that, I think, is what more and more people may come around to. So Elon must take over Twitter. It's, uh, you know, Twitter is it's, it's disproportionately uh, used by reporters, journalists, newsmakers, politicians, so it has a disproportionate impact in our public discourse. But as this horrible takeover continues, and frankly, this botched takeover continues, I think more and more people, more and more industries will find that, oh, the Risk not really worth the reward here, and I think the sports media industry is chief among them. But what is definitely rewarding is talking to John Tomasi now at NBC Sports Boston. So without any further ado, that conversation is coming up. On the other side of this break, I talked with Tomasi about the Red Sox offseason approach and how Haim Bloom and members of the front office are selling it to the fan base And whether or not their sales pitch is effective or genuine, uh, no one knows. Just as a teaser, we talk a little about Jalen Brown and his continued vehement defense of Kyrie Irving and how that's playing in terms of perception. In the Patriots, LaShawn McCoy this week, a longtime Belichick hater, criticized him again, saying that Bill Belichick without Tom Brady is not a great coach. In fact, he's much more in line with Marvin Lewis or Rex Ryan Ooh, harsh but true. And if the Patriots continue to middle along in the second half of the season, do all of us owe the LaShawn McCoys and Bart Scotts and the Belichick haters? Do we owe them an apology for maybe being right about the hoodie? That's coming up on the other side with Tomasi. It's a sports media mayhem. Thank you as always for listening. All right, welcome back. The people are going to love this. John Tomasi,
1: reunited. How are you, sir? Reamer, it's been too long. And you know, this is a time of great triumph for us and for our people. And so the fact that we did not have an outlet for that is a little bit disappointing, but maybe we can make up for it here and remind
0: people of why they have missed us so much. I know. Losing never felt so good. Being down in the house by a couple of seats has never felt better. Let me tell you, It's, it's a great triumph. Nothing. Great. Nothing says I am a Democrat like we only <laughs> lost by a little. Yay! It wasn't a total wipeout. We're on the up and up. It's great. Um. So, how do you like this transition? We'll get right into it. The Red Sox. I don't think are on the up and up right now. You wrote this the other day that they keep saying Xander Bogarts is their top priority, and by they, I guess, I mean Heim Bloom. But their actions, of course, indicate otherwise. My question is. You've been covering this stuff for a long time. When someone like Heimbloom keeps selling us this stuff, Xander Bogarts is our top priority. We want to re-sign Xander. We love Xander, et cetera. But we know, again, that their actions have shown anything but that. Like, who is that for, exactly?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And, you know, part of me thinks that it is probably an ingrained sort of, you know, Sam Kennedy ownership style control the narrative sort of effort it's like we want to make sure that if xander leaves like i do believe they want bogarts to a degree they want him on their terms or something probably closer to their terms than he's going to be comfortable with so i don't think it's total garbage like they have no intentions of even negotiating with him but i think it's an attempt a misguided attempt To control the narrative. This is a Red Sox-like thing to do, you know, dating back to Larry Lucchino and and all of that kind of stuff, where we want everyone to know how badly we wanted him. So when, if and when he leaves, we can say we did everything we could. The problem with this approach is you're doing it a at a time when trust in your front office is very low right if, you know if you ask red sox fans about Heim bloom they don't say wow what a great run to the alcs in 2021 they say mookie bets and xander right. bogarts is mookie bets part two and maybe rafael devers is mookie bets part three and so there's not the trust of the front office for one and for two you're saying that in an off season, When you have also made a point of saying, we will spend, we have resources. This is what we've been building towards. We can be a factor on any player we want. So you can't tell people on one hand, our pockets are, you know, limitless. Our coffers are limitless and then turn around and say, well, Xander wanted too much. And I think that's where they're headed. And I think that is going to blow up spectacularly in their face.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, they're not going to come out and say we have little interest in re Xander Bogarts to a market deal, but, you know, it's not 1997 anymore. Like, we read more than what Heim Bloom tells the reporters at the GM meetings or their winter meetings. Like, it's amazing to me that any sports team really thinks that they can somehow control a narrative when, again, actions speak louder than words, and we all know what the actions are.
1: Yeah, I mean, just think about it, just to take Bogarts as an example. Actions. You know, you lowballed him in spring training. You basically offered him one year and 30 million. You know, it's been presented as four and ninety, but it was really one and thirty because they were telling him keep the three and sixty already on your deal and we'll tack on one more year. And just to sidetrack just for one second, think about how nonsensical that is. You're telling him we think you're worth thirty million dollars four years from now, but we're not even gonna give you a raise for the next three when you can opt out. Like, that makes no sense. At least if you had said four and third, okay, four and 120, like, maybe you can make an argument for that. But this, no. So that's action number one. Action number two, you signed his replacement, Trevor Story. And Trevor Story gave the game away at his introductory press conference when he was asked about his comfort level playing second base. And he said, it's fine for this year. (laughs) which, you know, certainly leads one to believe that maybe he's been told, hey, if things don't work out with Xander, you'll be our shortstop. You know, then you get to the fact that they barely negotiate or didn't negotiate during the season. They had an exclusive negotiating window in October. They got nothing done. And then the report comes out on day one of free agency that they're talking to other teams about acquiring second baseman so Trevor Story can move to short. All of these actions tell me that they don't think they're going to sign Xander Bogarts. So when they come out and say, first priority, only priority, first priority. We're not stupid. Fans look at them and say, you're liars. And
0: that's what they're going to say if he signs elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, They're setting themselves up to have egg on their face. No doubt. When someone like Ken Rosenthal reports that the red, and I'm always interested by these insiders from Rosenthal to Schefter to Woj, how they word things. When someone like Rosenthal reports that the Red Sox have quote, I have it here. Uh, indicated a strong willingness to spend this offseason. You know, that's really how normal people talk. How do you, like, what do you read into that? Like, is that just total crap? No, I believe that. I I
1: 100% believe that. And it's interesting that you mentioned those guys because I think out of Wode, Schefter, and Rosenthal, Rosenthal by far is the one who's not compromised like the other guys are. You know, Schefter, we have the whole Washington thing where he was, like, letting Snyder read his stories ahead of time. And people have made the connection with Woj and Ime Udoka and sharing an agency and what's going on there. Rosenthal is the – I think he is the far and away the most beyond reproach of any of those guys. So when he says stuff like that, I believe it. But this all fits with what we've been – the local guys have been reporting – since the end of the season, and Bloom said it on the podcast with your coworker worker like oh, Brad. they were building to this off-season. The farm system is in shape. They had over $100 million come off the books. Ownership has always spent right up to or pretty much up to the luxury tax, yes. which means they are going to spend. So I don't doubt that they're going to spend this winter. I'm just not sure how they're going to do it. And we
0: can get yeah. into that in a second. Yeah, well, it's the Red Sox tradition. Spend on the other guys, but not your guys. You know, don't re-sign John Lester, but then pay David Price more than Lester got with the Cubs. Classic Red Sox. More things change. More stay the same, (laughs) I guess. Um, I want to ask you about Jalen Brown here, Tomasi. A little Celtic stuff. Um, You know, he's been on kind of the uh, pro-Kyrie bandwagon for a couple weeks, and really yesterday, Monday, a very vehement defense of Kyrie Irving. Um, He was slow to distance himself from Kanye West I think Jalen Brown is interesting. I think that he's obviously a very smart guy. He's said a lot of smart things about social justice and a lot of these types of issues. But I don't know. This vehement Kyrie defense does not really sit that well with me. Um, How do you read Jalen Brown? And why do you think that he seemingly avoids a lot of the scrutiny that, you know, that I think some athletes would get if they were as outspoken in favor of Kyrie Irving and some other things that he's said are, you know, done here.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to start with the Kyrie half of that. You know, why it, why is he defending Kyrie so much? I think this is a loyalty thing and a union yes. thing more than anything. Because well, Kyrie
0: is a vice president, right?
1: Kyrie is vice president of the union. Uh, Jalen Brown's uh, Celtics, you know, rep. He's high up in the very involved in union affairs. And I think he rightly, this is the part that I will agree on, This punishment is so haphazard where it's like basically you have to tell us what we want you to tell us and then you can come back. Like, I don't (laughs) think that's been collectively bargained. So I think the union part of Jalen Brown just can't abide by that. Like, this is too... Uh, you know, just nebulous. And that's not how collective bargaining works. So in that sense, I get it. I do think he is badly misreading the room when it comes to, okay, fine, you're loyal to your former teammate. More importantly, I think you're loyal to your union, but you have to step back and recognize how Kyrie's comments are being received and the environment they're being received in. You know, I don't have to tell you about, the rise in anti-Semitism, all this stuff in the last four or five years, uh, that has made those kind of comments particularly toxic, and there needs to be recognition of that. You know, as for uh, what was the other half of this question on Jalen Brown?
0: Uh, just in general, he seems to be—I don't know—a little more out there. Oh, than why he does think. he skate? Why? Yes, you're
1: asking why does he skate on this stuff, yeah. unlike other guys? Because I think he has put his money where his mouth is in terms of being involved in the community. And even his Kanye thing, it wasn't uh, initially it was loyalty to Kanye, which is like, okay, that's, that's not going to fly. Loyalty to
0: ye, John. Sorry.
1: I can never, I was like, is he Diddy or is that the other guy? I can never remember. (laughs) I sound very old daddy. Actually he's puff daddy. Yeah. Um, No, I, I think because Brown has been so visible in his community, whether it was going back to Georgia Uh, you know, during protests and all that kind of stuff. Uh, The fact that he's so involved in the community, I think that buys him some good, great, you know, that buys him some goodwill that other athletes wouldn't get. And, you know, Kyrie does some of that stuff too, but he's a class unto himself and he is a destroyer of teams and all that stuff. Brown has been a good teammate. He's been good in the community. And so I think people have been a little slower to jump all over him.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I agree with you. On one hand, I say, okay, like the Nets owner, Joe Tsai, who is, you know, funding the genocide in, of the Uyghurs in China is going to tell Kyrie, like, when he can, and can't come back. I get that. But on the other hand, and Jalen said, you know, is Nike now going to be more moralistic? When you start doing the, you know, what about them kind of game, you start to sound a little bit like Tucker Carlson as well. So I don't know. It's interesting. A couple of things, couple of ways to go there. Um, I also want to ask you this to close out. I know we like both talking about this. So for all of our years at EEI, we always hammered the Patriots trolls, right, Tomasi, the Bart Scots of the world, the Sean McCoys of the world, you know, get out our pitchforks for them. And LaShawn McCoy in the news again this week, saying Belichick is not a great coach, comparing him to Marvin Lewis, Rex Ryan. Um, if the Patriots, you know, kind of muddle along here in the second half, like they've done in the first half, and for the three years without Brady, do all of us, maybe not me and you, but do, does everyone else... Oh, Bart Scott, all these guys, an apology for piling on them all these years. Cause maybe, maybe they're right about Belichick. Maybe they were right.
1: <laughs> I love you. Mentioned Tucker Carlson, and now we're demanding apologies of people We are. A very, apologize. very thing to do. Address um, it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that the six rings and all of that probably speak for themselves, but you know, some holes have clearly been poked in the Belichick mythology. And even now, watching McDaniel struggle in Vegas as well. You're sort of like, man, his coaching tree. Isn't great. Uh, he is, it hasn't been great without Brady. Matt Jones has taken a step back. So I think it's less, we owe them an apology and more. You just got to sit there and take it uh, when these guys come out, especially if they finish this season, like they finished last season. And when you look at the schedule in front of them, that is not out of the realm of possibility, especially since their quarterback play has been so bad uh, this year. Yeah. You say, you know, if they end up sub 500, sorry, Patriots fans, you're just going to have to suck it up and take it because all those guys who have been sharpening their knives for years are finally
0: going to get to use them. Yep, exactly. And I think there's a lot of that locally too, or some of that locally, at least. Um, last question, when I left DEI and in our kind the liberal firewall totally collapsed over there, um, you said that we would reconnect with, I think, Beto AOC in maybe 2024 I don't know. Are we still backing them in a couple of years? AOC? I don't know. I think both are kind of out Beto, especially. I think we have to recalibrate a little bit.
1: Yeah. I would say, you know, our side tends to embrace like the losers, you know, yeah. Beto is where big Stacy Abrams were big. And it's like, well, these people keep losing. So maybe we should turn our attention elsewhere. Uh, AOC has been marginalized a little bit, she you know, the progressive been. wing sort of isn't what it was before. So I think we might be crawling on or climbing on, I should say, the Mayor Pete train, and uh, maybe he will lead us to salvation because I'm thinking that Joe getting up there, you know, I, I think his final gift to us will be not getting wiped out in these midterms. So thank you for that, sir. Thank you
0: for only, thank you for only losing the house by a couple
1: seats as we yeah, said. a grand success. That's a win for us. You know, one side is all about power and taking the Supreme Court and gerrymandering, you know, districts into oblivion. And we're like, we only lost by a little. Good job. <laughs> Everyone gets a trophy. I can think of somebody we used to work with who would love that. Uh, approach to
0: politics. I can't think of who you're thinking of. Uh, John Tomasi. Thanks, man. You got it. Anytime.